When people think Euphoria was wild, like imagine San Francisco pre-tech Euphoria. That's what School of the Arts, the era I went there was. Because this is 2000s, you have cheap drugs, you have uh, children who are dressed like adults because we're all artists, and you have uh, no real supervision because all the adults are wondering like how the hell they make their money. That was Mason J, poet, historian, and born and raised San Franciscan. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. This season on our show, we've revisited with a few folks who've already been on the podcast in one way or another. We wanted to dive in and get to know these people on a deeper level than our previous brushes with them. This episode is one such revisit. Mason first appeared on Storied SF back in season one, episode 31 to be exact. That was an excerpt from their performance at our first Reimagine event, Working With Death. In this podcast, we hear Mason's life story, from before their birth to just after high school. Check back Thursday for part two. Here's Mason. Uh, so I'm Mason Jay. I am currently the executive director of Radar Productions. Um, outside of that, I'm an artist, a historian, uh, and a jack of all trades, or a jerk of all trades, depending <laughs> on who you ask. <laughs> so far today, I'm going with Jack. Um, uh, but can you tell folks what Radar Productions is? Yeah, sure. Radar Productions is a literary nonprofit that was started in 2003 by none other than not only one of my personal heroes, but a notorious San Franciscan Michelle T. Mm-hmm. So it was started to empower the queer, trans, and gender nonconforming literary and performing arts community as just kind of a way to formalize us. And so right. I took over uh, very recently and quite unexpectedly. And so now I'm an ED for the first time. And that's what I'm doing currently and managing a queer archives of color residency, uh, a bunch of feral artists attempting to tour during COVID. Mm. and also creating my own work as an artist and continuing to do that and kind of just see the beginning buds of my career after my first book came out. And besides writing and poetry, what do you consider your arts? Ooh, that's a great question. I actually consider myself an artist in this thing I like to call radical hospitality. Okay. I feel like that's what guides and leads my art practice. Um, I came up in entertainment and arts. Like I was a professional working artist from the time I was four years old. Wow. So um, my family had worked, my mom had worked as executive producer of Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame for years. Um, I have several like Grammy winning relatives. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I had just been in the industry and my mom actually didn't want me to do it. She Mm. was like, you know, like, I don't want you to become one of those weird Hollywood kids. I don't want you to end up like Ricky Schroeder or something. (laughs) Or Leif Garrett. I get it. I I don't want you to be a Hollywood kid. Like, I don't want you to be Drew Barrymore partying at Studio 54, like things like that. And I I wanted it. And she was like, well, if you if you want to do it, you're going to have to do it and take it seriously like a job. So that's what I started working. I had my first work permit by the time I was four. Yeah. Um, All on my own volition. My mom was, like I said, not 
wanting really to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I was like, I want to do it. <laughs> Did she try to steer you in other directions uh, or, or just like, don't no, do that? Not necessarily don't do that, but she's like, you know, the, the you're going to have to learn to have many faces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not necessarily be careful because she knew everything we needed to be careful about. Right. So from the time I was little, you know, I always knew what I needed to look out for in terms of like bad behavior, unsavory characters, roles that I just was not going to audition for, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, just more so that she wanted me to be aware of what I was getting into and that I would probably lose a lot of my autonomy. And I think that's honestly what makes me good at doing my job is that from the time I was four years old, I've had the notion, the knowledge that you get to choose how you're seen and how Mm. people see you and you can change that. Mm -hmm. And whether you change or not, people will see you Hmm. in different ways. So that's, I think, the art of what I do is shape-shifting. People are like, what art do you do? I'm like, I'm a professional (laughs) shape-shifter. Well, there's a couple of things. So first of all, because this is audio and and folks will see pictures of you, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to set the record straight that you're not Ricky Schroeder. (laughs) I'm not Ricky Schroeder. Um, I am the opposite of... Thank, and thank you um, for not a, being of a white cisgender male <laughs> um, and a turd. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing I, I I heard you mention was radical hospitality. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that before yeah. we dig into your story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I come from a very community-minded like village, like by and I don't say that hy- hyperbolically. I mean that right. cr- pretty literally. I grew up a stone's throw away f- from here at mm-hmm. Midtown Park Apartments, mm-hmm. which is. Uh, as far as we know, still to this day, the only large suit of that nature to win against um, kind of a rent hike. Oh, we had a over f- I think I think an eight year rent strike or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and so I came up with this idea of community and family and um, things being. Uh, community-driven and community-led. Right. Uh, because I was born at a really interesting time in this city. Mm-hmm. So I was Which born we'll in, get into. Yeah, I was born in 88 <laughs> at the height of the crack epidemic and the height of the AIDS epidemic. Right. So there was a lot of things just going on and people being moved in, moved out, um, a lot of gang violence and things like that. So it was like, how do we stay together as a community here in San Francisco? As black San Franciscans, Asian San Franciscans, Latino and Pacific Islanders. Those are mostly, mostly the people I was raised with. And then also even European immigrants mm-hmm. um, uh, from all over. Uh, folks who had come over in the 80s and the 90s from Ukraine. So it's just like all this literally like it takes a village, everyone, yeah. <laughs> white, black, whoever, gay, yeah. straight, trans, whoever, all around at all right. times. And so <laughs> in that same sense, it also meant that I never had any privacy. <laughs> so so <laughs> someone always watching right. how you behave. I was yeah. always told that from a young age. Wherever you go, someone in the city knows you. So right. you're representing the city. You're representing. For better or worse. You're representing our city wherever you walk, wherever you step foot in the city. And yeah. So, I mean, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it created a sense of paranoia okay. <laughs> in me okay. about being seen and contributing. So people, even if they don't see it, at least know that it goes on. Right. And so that's kind of what led me to art was just always this sense of how do we keep people together? For me, the way I keep people together is through using words and through using art. Love it. Uh, let's dig into your story. Yeah. Like I said, like however many gender, and this is the part where I I would like to try to be somewhat chronological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, what? Uh, well, I'm a historian, so we can go chronologically. Let's do it. So okay. how how do we get to ni- that moment in 1990? 19, sorry, 1988 Eight. when you yes, come into this yes. world. Yes. Well, we actually have to start before that. We have to start yeah. in 78. Okay. Uh, 78, I bring up because that is one of my favorite years, just in general on yeah. the planet. But in San Francisco, it is a really pivotal yep. year. 
year because we yep. have you know Harvey Milk, we have Jonestown, we have uh, urban renewal like making its way through the city in a new way now mm -hmm. that there's an undercurrent of drugs and new money and commerce coming in mm -hmm. with 70s, all these business people coming here mm -hmm. and like what eventually like we call them proto techies. That's why I say like it's right. gentrification 3.0, not actually tech 1.0. Right, 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 right. Um, so that's what the set beta. The scene it was for the beta. Me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the set set the scene was. Okay. The city was in chaos, mm -hmm. and my mom was a punk at the time, actually. Okay. And so she was, you know, politically aware. Where is she from? Sorry. She's from here. Actually. She's from here. Okay. Born and raised here. Born okay. here. Uh, I think at St. Mary's. And in I'm 70, not sure. How, about how old was she? She would have been 28, 28 in 78. Okay. Um, so this is like around she's she's already had two biological children by this time But she's seeing that other you know parents her own age because she was a young mother mm -hmm. are getting hooked on drugs Right, and so suddenly there's 12 15 kids at her house every night coming to dinner because other parents are hooked on smack Or they've lost their jobs and they can't do anything and my mom was literally just a working s a Single mom right bartender okay events organizer not rich by any means But was seen as someone who had it together so yeah, in 78 she's, you know, I actually don't know where she was working then because I know she was working at various places, mostly nightclubs. I know mm -hmm. she was an active attendee, if not even working there as well at, in events and booking and stuff at Passan's, which is a jazz was a jazz club, mm -hmm. uh, Yoshi's, mm -hmm. both uh, the East Bay and the San Francisco location, all these things. But these clubs were a little more later in the 80s. I actually don't okay. know what she was doing in the 70s. Um, but anyway, she was noticing that people were in need. How could she legitimize, like legally get on the books to maybe take in some of these children? Mm. Okay. And so well, almost like a foster mm -hmm. situation. I'm and guess. so that's basically where I come in is a little later. She was like, well, you know, maybe I'm not ready for this right now because it was very, very difficult, especially in 70, 78 to single parent, single woman, right. biracial female be considered a able to take care of kids on your own. So she, you know, hung around in the punk scene, f fucked around there a little bit. She worked, what were her two uh, races? Sorry. Uh, she is Okinawan is. and, uh, Euro mutt. <laughs> like, she it. doesn't know her dad. Got it, got it, got uh, it. But like, you know, uh, I think there's Irish blood there, Germanic blood for sure, mm -hmm. and other European blood, maybe even got Polish, it. stuff like that. But Okinawan for sure. My grandmother is full-blooded Okinawan from Kona. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and so I'll get into that actually when I talk about why I do the work that I do in history, because that's the sure. reason I do it. But, sure, you know, sure. so yeah, the 80s come around, punk is here, she's getting politicized, things are only increasing, only getting worse. She decides, okay, maybe now's the time. And at that point, things had gotten so bad. There were so many children being uh, addicted to drugs in utero who were right. like, just coming out, you know, coming off of drugs out the womb, literally. Right. Uh, they were like, okay, we'll license you. And not only are we licensing you, we're putting you in like this new pilot program where only the sickest babies that are probably going to die are going to go because Fuck. no one will sign up for it because no one wants to watch babies die. Right. So she's like, okay. <laughs> like, like, okay, I'll do it. Sure, sign me up. So they show up to her house. By herself. Yeah, by herself. Yeah. And she's got two teenage daughters, too. My okay. sisters are at Galileo in Washington at the time. Okay. Uh, so they're, I think, uh, like a, a sophomore and a junior, or a freshman and a junior at the time. Okay. When she gets her first set of kids. And they come to her in a literal Washington Apples box. Oh, my God. <laughs> the social worker is, like, so overwhelmed. He doesn't know how to hold twins because he's, he's an overworked social worker working in the height of the crack and epidemic. <laughs> He brings the babies in a fucking Washington Apple box. Apples box oh up three flights of stairs, huffing and puffing, and says, here are your children. 
my god. And she's like, what have I gotten myself into? Twins. And, yeah, and thus starts 50 plus years of her working as a foster parent. Okay. So about a year after that, uh, I come into the picture. I'm born, I was born uh, addicted to heroin and crack. Both my parents were full-blown addicts. Uh, my mom was pretty high when I was even had. Mm. Uh, and so they basically half-assedly filled out my birth certificate and then left um and so that was that and that's how i entered the world so i spent the first nine days of my life alone kind of like the movie train spotting but like as a newborn Mm. detoxing (laughs) um from like being exposed to drugs for like months of my fetal life right and so they were like this baby's probably gonna die because i was i was barely four pounds and smaller than like a can of soda Mm. and so were you early too yeah i was a preemie too Mm -hmm. and so like they were like the baby's not exposed to drugs possible hiv exposure Mm. um and yeah from which of your parents? Or uh, from my mom. Because okay. my mom, uh, at that point, didn't have HIV, but was uh, at high risk for HIV. Right, right. She developed HIV a few years, I think six years later after she had me, but they assumed that she might have it. And to so backdate it. Yeah, yeah, and so they immediately gave me, you know... I guess because it wasn't even it wasn't even legalized then, but they gave me like basically an AIDS cocktail fit yeah. for like the size of a mouse as, for a, a, baby, as a newborn as a newborn okay. in the bottom of my feet okay. because you, there's no there's no veins because it was too small right. to even right. <laughs> inject. Right. So they inject everything in the bottom of my feet, basically put me on the you know the I guess what would be in, in, in considered pep now, right? <laughs> to make sure that. Everything was clear, so I did. I ended up not having antibodies. I ended up being fine, but they okay. were like, "We don't know." And yeah. so they took me home. They told my mom I would probably never walk, never talk, probably be a menace to society, and never grow up to do anything, and hmm. that she should actually just start ordering my coffin now. Okay. And here I am now, 34 years later. That's clearly not the case. Mm-hmm. So how that all ties into what I do now is I was raised from a very early age to know about like what was going wrong in the world. Mm. <laughs> like, because a lot of it was in you. Affecting my life or yeah, things yeah. like that. You know, when other kids are looking at, you know, the D.A.R.E. commercials and stuff and being like, that's not real. Like, I had, like, a tangible knowledge of it, you right. know? Like, even if I don't have a waking conscious knowledge of it now as an adult, the body remembers that. My body probably, whether I know it or not, remembers spending the first nine days on the planet sure. jonesing for drugs I could never have again in my life and will never have because right. I physically can't have because it would automatically trigger addiction. Right. Because I'm hardwired for it. Right. So it's, like, this weird thing of like how do you talk to a three-year-old about not using drugs for the rest of their life well you tell them that their parents are drug addicts and that's why they don't live with their parents yeah and so for me this idea of family being biological from the time i was three was bullshit and i was like well no like whoever raises you and doesn't fuck you up is your family yep (laughs) yep so were you raised in a foster I was. I was raised in a foster home, but I was really privileged, unlike many people that have even been on your podcast, is that I have the very unique positionality of only ever being in one home my entire life. Yeah. I've also never been in a shelter system. Okay. And I've also never been officially homeless. I've been marginally housed. I've been unstably housed, but I've never been actually, actually, like, nowhere. Living on the streets. Never never had to actually live on the streets. Okay. I count myself really lucky in that regard because I know that is a rarity in a foster care system Mm. to not only just a 
avoid all those pitfalls, but to have one placement. Right. And that was in that home was in San mm-hmm. Francisco. That home is in San Francisco. Are you still in touch with those folks? Oh, that yeah, that's my you? mom. I'm that's... going to see her after I leave you because she's four blocks away. Okay. And so, yeah, I grew up in a foster home with several rotating siblings. So that's the interesting thing, too, is I have siblings that came and went from my home and then siblings who were also adopted like me. So I have probably, officially, probably over 40 or 50 siblings. Wow. But in my adopted actual legal family, I've got still a lot, seven. Okay, right. <laughs> but there are literally people to this day who come to our house, who I don't know, who say his mom home, and I know I'm supposed to open the door for anyone who says his mom home, regardless of their age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. Because my mom has been raising kids since for 78. So if a man years. who's 45 shows up at door and says, his mom home? I say, yeah, who are you? <laughs> so, so it's just like, you know, an automatic lack of distrust for strangers because you have to assume that if they know your mom, sure. they belong in your house. And are you in touch with your either of your bio parents? No, I'm not actually. Yeah. My mom passed away due to AIDS complications the okay. day after her 45th birthday in 2004. Um, I never met her. I've seen photographs of her by way of the internet, which oh. is strange because I found my biological brother on Instagram. Okay. I haven't reached out to him because there is the whole matter of gender and sexuality, which I'll get into in a second, because that actually comes up really early in my childhood and is one of the reasons I didn't have multiple placements. Okay. Um, is, yeah, I haven't. Uh, my dad, unfortunately, is just kind of a jerk. Mm. Uh, is really, he around here? Or? I actually don't know where he is. My dad has yeah. been incarcerated for the entirety of my life. Okay. Like, basically, I think after a few weeks after I was born. Okay. Like, has been wow. in jail, not consistently the whole time, but in and out. And have you met him? I have not. The only way I've actually ever seen a photo of him is similarly through the internet. I googled his mugshot. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> like, like, you know, because I know their names. I know my parents' biological names and their birth dates. Okay. But no more information of that. And that wasn't that my family tried to keep it from me. It was that they really didn't want anything to do with me. Did your foster mom name you? Uh, my foster mom didn't, actually. Did I you? was named by my biological parents. Okay. And I was named by after both of their relatives. And so that's my... That's not a name I use anymore, but it was right. the name I was given at birth. Okay. And it's funny because it's a girl's name, mm-hmm. uh, but it translates to short man from the sea (laughs) so like I'm not going to give you my full dead name but if you speak French uh, it means short man from the sea got it okay (laughs) uh, so our francophones now maybe have my dead name but even still um, it's not it's not literally it's it's not it's a loose translation short man from the sea comments will be disabled yeah Or you can try to guess, and I'll just tell you you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they named me, and it's funny, because I think it's interesting you bring that question up, because it's the power of a name. Mm-hmm. The renaming of myself actually gave me the job that I have now. Mm. Is uh, is that later on? That's later we'll on. Get, that's around we'll 20. Because right now we're at about 5, 6, 7. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so around 8, I realized that things were not amiss, but I just wasn't relating to the world like other children. Like, on a creative level, I had, like, a lot of artistic talent that I was already pursuing professionally. I'd already been working in the industry for four or five years. Um, But I could see from a very early age that it was starting to get gendered Mm. in a way that didn't work for me, especially the way it was being viewed at the time. 
And so specifically the art world or specifically the art world. I was working in modeling, film, TV, and also voiceover acting. They're stepping those industries still heavily gendered, right? And so the issues I was facing in voiceover acting was I sounded quote unquote too white, even though I'm not white. I'm black, indigenous, and Mexican. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that I was too articulate and too white. Hmm. And so that they were having trouble booking me. And I said, well, why not just send me out for characters that are white? And like it's voiceover, like they don't see me, and they were like, "Oh no, 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 no!" And so I was getting what's called in the industry sat on. Is like even though I had an agent, even though I was uh, a union member, I was AFTRA, I was SAG and AFTRA before I was nine. Mm. I had two union memberships that I could not get booked because mm. of the way I sounded. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, "Make yourself sound black," and I was like, "How do I make? Like, how do I make myself sound black? What the fuck does that mean?" Like, right. And, and the then, whole like and, white as articulate. Yeah. Like, and those to go together. And so then I was like trying to uh, yeah. like put on a fake black suit and you know be fucking myself. It was not working, and so yeah. it was even worse than what I was going and just reading as myself because I sounded you know and it's such like uh, puppet strings yeah and it was just like also like voiceover like I'm doing uh, this gives you a key of the time I was doing CD-ROM educational (laughs) CD-ROMs so I'm narrating before they became coasters in our homes yeah I'm educating narrating educational CD-ROMs like click the fish (laughs) like like, good job I think I had that one (laughs) yeah like like, alright try again (laughs) like all these things and they're like you sound too white and I'm like it's a fucking command what do they care (laughs) right so I said okay screw this and then I said okay modeling is getting creepy because now they're trying to make it like sexualized Mm -hmm. and I was like this is fucking weird i don't mm-hmm. want to be sexualized i'm a kid like right. i just want to ride up show do my sh- do my shoot leave on my skateboard mm-hmm. um and i was a gender non-conforming little child like and it's like i say i was not a girl like i was a female impersonator okay. <laughs> like it was a professional female impersonator for like the first 10 or so years of my life right um, still living at midway or yeah i was still living at midtown oh, sorry um, midtown sorry. um and my family was there very queer friendly very everything because like my mom had worked in nightlife so she knew a bunch of queens literally <laughs> Figuratively, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether they were biological women <laughs> or not, sure. she knew uh, people who were dressing as women. <laughs> right. And so she said, you know, I think my kid might be queer. What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I do? Uh, I think, and you know, we didn't have the language for gender non-conforming youth at the time. Not in the 90s. No, no not, not at all. But I was. And right. so she was allowing me to express my gender in ways that were atypical. She was allowing me to dress however I wanted. Awesome. Uh, allowing me uh, to... Uh, this is something really interesting because this is like something that's normal and obvious and easily discussed topic now is consent was like Mm. a lot of children are not given bodily autonomy but because I had had some residual medical effects as a result of being exposed to like drugs in utero I had some sensory processing issues so I Mm. needed physical autonomy Mm -hmm. and so everyone thought I was rude or spoiled or like bratty or stuff but my mom would be like no this is just like what they need to mm. actually be able to function in the situation so I learned that you could have boundaries right <laughs> like, from a young age from a young age yeah. and even if you're queer you can have boundaries yeah. those boundaries are actually good <laughs> like, yep. they're not people will tell you they're wrong because the boundaries make them uncomfortable that doesn't mean your boundaries are wrong right um, and so I, you know, we started to do it. And so we, you know, there was no even concept of puberty blockers or anything like that. And it was really interesting because at the time I hadn't even gone through puberty and mm. they were wondering if they should give me things to jumpstart my puberty. And they mm-hmm. were like, what the hell's happening? Like mm-hmm. all the other 
kids are kind of, you know, getting their bodies. <laughs> their like big girl bodies. 11, 12, <laughs> yeah, 13. Yeah, 8, 11, 12, whatever oh. that. Because uh-huh. um, in, in, in San Francisco, children, I don't know if it's because of the air or what, they tend to start puberty really early. Really, yeah. Uh, so was, it, in my case, other people around me were starting at like 8, 9, 10, 11. Um, wow. And here I was, 12 years old. Uh, playing sports, I had a six-pack, I had a little thin mustache, and people were like, what's going on? And Mm -hmm. so I was actually, this is really weird, I was actually investigated by a few youth leagues that I was playing in Hmm. for, like, the same way Castor Samaya and folks like that are investigated for having elevated testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Investigated, because they thought that my uh, coach was trying to pull, like, uh, like that Rodney Dangerfield movie, Butterflies, (laughs) and had, like, put a boy (laughs) on the team. I'm sorry, that's the first... Rodney Dangerfield reference on this whole five years of this podcast. Okay, I'm so sorry. Ladybugs. A little Go on, please. Yes, for those who don't know, Ladybugs is a, I think an 80s or 90s movie yeah. starring Rodney Dangerfield where he recruits Jonathan Brandis, R.I.P., uh, to play soccer as a girl. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, It's Butterfly? I think it's Ladybugs. 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 Oh, yeah, I remember Ladybugs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, they thought my coach was trying to pull a Ladybugs and investigated me and asked for my birth certificate being oh, adopted geez. my birth certificate didn't have my parents names on it right so they were like what the hell is this and they were like here's the updated birth certificate and of course the way legality works they're like that's even more suspicious yeah <laughs> they didn't Jesus. actually end up pursuing it any further because my dad was like this is fucking insane my right. child's not a man but it's ironic now because their child is a man. well <laughs> but right. that's neither here nor there <laughs> um, not yet not yet right. at the time he was right right <laughs> so, so you know, my child's not a man. Like, what the hell? What the hell is wrong with you? So wait, I'm sorry. Um, you're you've talked a lot about your mom. Yeah. So, but you did have a foster dad as well. Well, or unofficially, my mom is a single someone, mom. Someone known. I as have a father figure. Dad. Who I call okay, got dad. it. Got I have it, like it, eight dads and like seven moms. So I'll mm-hmm. say dad and mom. I could be talking about one of five people when I say dad or mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my sports dad. Got it. Uh, <laughs> you're like right Dangerfield. Yeah. Like I have, I have I have multiple parents because like I said I was raised by a village i have a sports dad i have a technology dad i have a business dad (laughs) like various dads who've helped me be my dad because i don't have one singular dad right so my sports dad was like this fucking preposterous yeah um and yeah and so i continued to play sports and i was like thinking about playing sports and like being like a professional body what What i was playing soccer i was kicking ass and taking names and actually being recruited for colleges before i had entered high school oh shit okay because that's just the way the athlete harvest works is they yeah they, they, like, they pick go young, young yeah did you like it i loved it yeah. it was the one of the few times that i felt okay in not being shamed for the things that i was good at you mm. know because you have to keep in mind i was being perceived as a little girl right um and so the fact that i had you know muscles and you know like i could run faster and jump mm. higher and was <laughs> very angry when, when I lost. <laughs> okay. You know, I was passionate. Yeah, I was compa- I, like, yeah. No, really bad loser. <laughs> okay. I even say to this day, I don't play games I don't plan on winning. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and so, yeah. And so I was like, this is going to be my life. I'm going to be, and it was also like the late 90s, so it's like, peak world women's cup, world cup had just happened yeah, you know yeah. we were all ripping off our jerseys pretending we were brandy chastain with our little sports bras on mm-hmm. and so i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna grow up to be brianna scurry like i'm gonna be a black goalkeeper because i played keeper and forward okay and so i was like i'm gonna do that i'm gonna be that i'm mm-hmm. gonna go to unc chapel hill I'm gonna oh. go, or stanford if i do decide to stay in california like and so that dream immediately got dashed right before i turned 13 
Okay. I tore my ACL. <laughs> and so I was out. Ouch and, and was, bummer. Yeah. And it was like they had to wait for me because I was still a late bloomer to start puberty. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting at home all summer long waiting for a period like a fucking package from UPS <laughs> uh, because they couldn't do the surgery because I wouldn't be done growing. Got it. Until, <laughs> like, until, I, until I at least had one period. They were like, you still probably will lose three inches, and that is true. Like, I, my bones, it's been looked at since. I should be taller, but I lost mm. a few inches. But they had to wait till I at least had one period to do the surgery. Okay. So it finally happened. I had my surgery, and I was like, well, now what the fuck am I going to do? Like, that was my ride to my high schools. Like, I was planning on going to private high schools because I come from a low-income family. My mom's just a foster parent, no other income. Right. Um, so I was like, I can't go to St. Ignatius. I can't go to Sacred Heart. Not going to go to convent of the Sacred Heart, <laughs> all girls school, like not going to go to not going to go to any of the schools that were going to give me the like basically the free ride I needed to a good college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, well, what else do I do? Well, I can't go back to art. What else do I do? I literally have a n- learning disability that prevents me from being good, any good with numbers. What else mm. can I do? I guess I have to go back to art. Uh, so I started writing on the recovery of my ACL surgery because you're literally laid up with your leg in the air. So right. I spent the months, my summer, the summer between seventh and eighth grade, preparing a portfolio that I would then pres- uh, submit to the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts. Ah, were you writing? Sorry, because this is like ancient. Yeah. Typewriter, hand. Like, <laughs> I what was were you writing doing? all sorts of things. I had an electric uh, yes. Casio typewriter yeah. that I did use. I wasn't good at it. Uh, so none of the stuff that actually went into my portfolio was written on it, but I did write on it. It was okay. a little hard, like I said. I was recovering from knee surgery, so mm-hmm. like you have to like lay almost Those on your back. Those things were fucking and, heavy, yeah. too. And like I couldn't keep it on my lap because no. it would, like, my legs would go numb and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or like I'd have to change the ice pack, uh, mm-hmm. the ice machine that was pumping ice around my leg right. like 24-7 <laughs> so, so I used pen paper early computer stuff and I got really into the internet and this is what brought me to where I am right now is I have been a computer user since I was a little kid because I'm disabled right. um, I used to be able to type all my things in elementary school mm-hmm. it was in my IEP my individualized education plan that uh, my hands didn't allow me the ability to write like other children so I could type things so mm. I've been on the internet way longer than I should have been <laughs> okay. so I started looking up you know like careers for writers all types of jobs for writers and mm-hmm. things like that and I said okay well I guess I could do this let me apply to this weird arts high school that all these famous people went to and see if I can go did, so you knew that about about uh, yeah, soda. So, soda but did you know any people personally who went there <laughs> no <laughs> the time I didn't I had known many people who had gone there uh, like I said I have many people in my family who are in arts and entertainment um, my uncle or, or my uncle but like family friend Robert Henry Johnson uh, jr. Uh, is a dance phenom and choreographer and he went there um, Aisha Tyler who's a pretty famous comedian yep. who is well known around the black community and the San Francisco community she went there yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Margaret Cho went there mm-hmm. and has come back to speak Sam Rockwell went there so like people right. I had known in media and also known through being like a kitty actor myself right. went there when people think euphoria was wild like imagine San Francisco pre-tech euphoria that's what School of the Arts the era I went there this was. is like around 2000 yes because okay. this is 2000s you have cheap drugs you have 
have uh, children who are dressed like adults because we're all artists, and mm-hmm. you have uh, no real supervision because all the adults are wondering like how the hell they make their money. <laughs> um, so like no one's parents are really around, and if there are around, they're like cool parents who like try to get you to smoke weed with them even if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. So it's like a really interesting weird time. But it was like, uh, like a mill for professional artists. Okay. Like that's the interesting thing about Ruth Asawa School of the Arts. It was it was called Soda at the time. Now it's called the Ruth Asawa School of the right, Arts, right, rightfully right. named for Ruth Asawa, who's half not half, but a large portion of the reason that it exists. Right. Um, so yeah, I went to Soda and I had the time of my life. And it's awesome. funny because I can't imagine having any other high school experience. And every time I talk to even other San Franciscans, they're like, "What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> that's not high school. You went to like." Hogwarts basically yeah. for arts yeah. Fairyland. Um, you know like I I got to hear you know Dave Eggers speak to my class in person right you know I got to learn the art of poetry from people like Jack Hirschman uh, uh, people like R. Kevin R. Killian were helping me figure out how to turn my ridiculous ideas into poems mm-hmm. uh, real heavy hitters Maxine and Paul Chernoff who are the at the time the co-chairs of the MFA department at SF State were regulars in our high school classroom. Wow. So you're sitting there, like, at 14 years old, like, picking your nose still with zits, but you've got, like, these literary, like, icons Giants. being you, like, like ripping your work up. Right. And so, like, by the time I was 18, 19, applying to, like, colleges and other things and submitting to journals and getting rejections, I didn't cry. I'd you already know. been called awful. Like, for right. Years, or, or yep. you know, I knew, like, I, I, I just applied to apply because I was told I would get in trouble if I didn't apply to 50 things. <laughs> You know, because that's, you know, they give us assignments like that. You have to submit your work to 50 things, 50 places. We don't care if they take you submission. Submit it anyway. Okay. <laughs> so you would have, you, your teeth were cut. Yeah. So, yeah, we learned how to, you know, format literary journals on Quark. <laughs> oh, God. Because <laughs> you have to keep in mind, it's like 2003. Yeah. So we're Sorry, you're bringing back some yeah, memory. Yeah, but, you know, we're 15 and 16-year-olds. Totally. Formatting, like, putting out a legitimate literary journal, yeah. circulating it, selling it for $15 a pop, selling out of it. Wow. Selling it to bookstores in the city, uh, interning at places like 826, interning mm-hmm. at places like Intersection for the Arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of our monthly homework was we had to go to four public performances. So like this, and perform and read and or no, do whatever to, to, or, to just take up just city to take culture. It in, to take it in. So yeah, you had yeah. to like bring your ticket stub and your parent had to sign your program. Oh, shit. So you had to be like, I went to the symphony or I went to go see a show at Brava or I went to go see art and film with I did art and film with Ron Chase, who was like an art gnome who ran around the town and just put kids in art and film settings for free right for decades wow <laughs> the point being immersing yeah just immersing kid, the kids in art in and the, like treating us like equals right and so that's how i almost want to say i developed a confidence that isn't allowed to youth artists off often mm-hmm. and like it's not just that it was like also the time in the place i say it's a very specific environment like you know murals happening like people the city changing very rapidly business is going and it like at that point it was still kind of the last i call the second art renaissance of san francisco is there mm. were still people who could just live here working as mm-hmm. artists it was possible so so you saw people who were maybe only 10 years older than you right. who were making their full-time careers you know people like michelle t she was teaching us but she was only in her mid 
mid-20s. Right. So she was, like, cool and relatable. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. Like, you know, I'm 16, but she's not even 30, and she's got, you know, two books out, and now she's teaching at a high school, and she kind of does whatever she wants. Like, right. well, wow, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what it all became. And so okay. I made a bunch of connections there and continued to kind of hold them throughout my time like there and then I left and I said okay I'm going to keep doing art but I realized I could not competitively compete in the art world the writing world at that time hmm. like and you, you say you left you, you graduated or mm-hmm, yeah okay. I graduated after a really really rough interesting time there I was mm-hmm. in a really wild IPV situation intimate partner violence same gender situation that my school didn't take seriously um, and so my school wasn't taking it seriously because at the time no same gender protections existed in San Francisco's Mm. Unified School District, Um, which you think is wild, where San Francisco, you think in 2004... Right. You would consider gay children exist. (laughs) (laughs) What a concept. But they're like, no. They were like, if the if the two students were the same the opposite gender, we would be able to gender segregate them and da 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 da. But it's too difficult for us to worry about interpersonal matters. And like when I say intimate partner violence, I mean like physical assault, verbal assault, things like that, Mm -hmm. destruction of property, things Mm -hmm. like really actual things that could be legally finable or offensible. Right. Like were going on on school property and my school had just you know dismissed it and so I started becoming truant like as as a result like most most people dealing in intimate partner totally. violence they isolate Stay themselves mm-hmm. from whatever wherever the source of that injury is coming so if I was going to school and seeing my abuser like you know I just was like okay I'm gonna not go to school right. and I'm just gonna show up and turn in my work because I'm smart and my teachers like me anyway and so that worked for a while but then it didn't and so then ironically our now vice president uh, threatened to like send my mom to jail mm-hmm. <laughs> which is funny because as I mentioned my mom has been fostering and adopting children for 45 50 heck? years yeah. and so ironically the same year my mom was recognized by the city and county of San Francisco and the department of human services for being foster parents of the year she was also um, dealing with being threatened to be sent to at the time 850 Bryant for uh, I guess child neglect because I was truant Oh, so, so I was going to SF Women Against Rape for crisis counseling during the school day and just cutting school on my own accord so yeah I was technically truant but Mm -hmm. truant due to some compounding circumstances that the district was not helping us. Right. With. That's the neglect. Yeah. Let's be honest. And so it just became this wild thing. And I just checked out and barely got out by the skin of my teeth. Um, a lot of my sis- a lot of my siblings, I, I say siblings, meaning queer, fellow queers, um, either teachers or other students who were there uh, supported me through that. Um, cool. Through this really weird time where everyone was trying to say, like, it's all your fault. Like, you're a failure, like, da-da-da-da-da, like, we're going to send your mom to jail. And I'm just like, don't send my mom to jail. She's, like, the only person trying to make sure I don't get hit at school. Like, right. And you guys are telling me that it's okay for me to get at school because I'm gay? Like, like make it make sense. <laughs> and so naturally for any child, that would be, like, destabilizing. So I was like, right, you know right. what? I'm not going to do art. I'm not going to do writing. I can't even talk about these things that are going on because the city is also rapidly changing yeah that time my friends are starting to move away and i was like well what do i even have here mm-hmm. and i said okay i observe really well 
I guess I'm going to do photography. Mm. So I switched and I started pursuing full photography full time. After high school? Mm hmm Okay. And so I opened my own photography business, oh, being shit. a little queer pervert. It was called Pink Dot Photography. It's a clitoral <laughs> reference. Uh, uh, Wait, and, sorry, what year was this? Uh, this was 06, uh, 07. 07. So oh, I yeah. graduated in 06 and I started the business around 07, 08. Like I had started okay. taking photos and charging people for photos, but I didn't start like calling it a business to like okay. 08. Um, and so I was doing that and doing pretty well at it uh, because I had a time in modeling. I knew how to direct models. Right. I knew what needed to happen and I knew what images sold. Mm -hmm. And so I worked with a lot of models who looked nothing like me and that became my specialty was I was mm. known as <laughs> the weird girl with the camera um, is that I looked nothing like a model at that point because as a result of my IPV situation I had eaten myself into uh, gaining around 60 or 70 pounds oh, more than I wow. weigh now so right, right. I'm pretty short so it's about 210 pounds standing about five wow. feet two did not look like a model right. and a masculine presenting woman with hair that I could sit on so I looked really just like people were like who the fuck is this person <laughs> that takes all these really hot uh, pictures <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so what happened was I started uh, befriending go-go dancers and sex awesome. workers and so I started doing fetish photos mm -hmm. nude photos for their boyfriends nude photos for their clients like whatever because yeah. I just like didn't care because I didn't sexualize their bodies in the ways that men were but right. because I was a queer person I had a sexual eye yeah <laughs> and so well, I knew, and, it's, and it's a business yeah and those and someone so would buy like, those photos and so it was like Okay, so I started shooting like suicide girl sets, uh, like oh, application God. sets for all the girls in You're San really Francisco. You're really dusting off a lot of, <laughs> yeah. of yeah. quirk yeah. and suicide girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's this is the this Holy is what made moly. me. Yeah, <laughs> and so so I'm yeah I'm 20 years old, not even old enough to go into the bars, um, mm -hmm. but I'm shooting all my friends who are becoming suicide girls because mm -hmm. they're all tattooed artists, they're all feminists, lucky, they're all fire spinners. Lusty lady. Oh yeah, 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 yeah chicks, lusty yeah. lady. Yeah, yeah. no, all, I know all the girls from Lusty. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so the, the, they weren't. Th I wasn't friends with them then. I didn't become friends with them till later. But I knew that orbit. Right. And I was shooting these people who were working at you know the top floor at Kink, who were you know doing out calls and in calls and just like, what do you need? I'll mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. um, and How so long I, did that last? Very short okay. period of time because one, it was a weird window. It was right before what I call the GWC, the guy with camera era. <laughs> Okay. of like the late 2000s when people started having more disposable income and digital mm. SLRs became more accessible mm -hmm. to public mm -hmm. most specifically creepy guys who wanted cameras right, right. so the GWC emerged and suddenly everyone's a photographer, photographer because yep. they've got you know $1,800 to spend on a body $700 yeah. to spend on the lenses and they don't even know how to turn that thing on but they get a girl who wants their pictures taken and they're like I'm a photographer trust me and yeah. they wear some cargo shorts and a fucking camo vest Jeez. and they call themselves a photographer yeah the GWC came and the way that gender and sexism work is that people actually unfortunately trusted them so they were like these white men must know what they're doing even though they were all fucking incompetent perverts who were just jerking off to the photos um, and that's the funny thing is, is you would hear like I never got my photos back and it's like well what did you think would happen right. and it's like at that point you don't victim blame but you're like also, these people are not qualified to take your photo. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, so I was doing that. I got kind of, of hot shoddy around it, and was trying to figure out how to keep up because I didn't 
because I was, like I said, I was working with mostly queer people, working with mostly people who were aspiring models and aspiring porn stars, not yet famous. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the same ability to keep up with technology. Mm -hmm. So I was like, well, what the hell do I do? Well, I guess I'm going to just like continue doing, doing what I'm doing. And so I did. I started moving into like doing stuff that I liked a little less. I started doing product photography. I started okay. doing tabletop shoots for eBay sellers. Mm. Like basically anything that would pay me. I started shooting events that I didn't care about. Mm -hmm. Like like if anyone wanted a photographer, if the event wasn't too ridiculous or a wedding, because I don't shoot weddings, I would do it. That was Mason J. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, Mason finishes the story of their life for us. Part two drops this Thursday wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. And the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, we have more than 180 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you can, please rate and review the show so we can reach even more folks. We love email, and we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time on Storied San Francisco. podcast is a proud member of the bff.fm podcast network learn more at podcasts.bff.fm bff.fm best frequencies forever